Colossians 3, 12 to 17 is where we're going today. And it says this, uh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I have a friend and colleague, uh, a lovely Irish lady, who uh, I was chatting to one day at work about uh, morning routines and the challenges of getting the kids up and out of the house in time for school. And as the conversation progressed, it turns out that every weekday, without fail, she would get up before anyone else in her house around 5am and would place her two children's school uniforms uh, on the radiator for them. Then after having a quiet morning coffee and a moment to herself, she would get breakfast sorted. And then she would take the newly warmed clothes and lay them out on the bottom of her children's beds so that when they woke up, they had fresh warm clothes to get into each and every day. So being the lovely guy I am, whilst feeling slightly jealous about the parental bar she had just set, I obviously mocked her for this morning ritual and told her she was mad teaching her kids learned helplessness, especially as her own son was 12 and had never made his own breakfast yet. But her response to this was great and put me in my place. She said, I know, I know, Matt, but I so love my children. And this is just one of the ways I love to show it to them, like my mum did for me. I mean, this really struck me. This was beautiful, sacrificial love that was driving this morning routine. Every morning, put out fresh, warm clothes for her kids. Here in this passage we have just read, which flows on directly from what Chris C.B. said last week. So if you haven't heard that excellent preach, go on and listen to it before this one if you get the chance. Paul is essentially describing how God does a very similar thing to my friends for those he has saved. At the start of this passage, Paul says in verse 12, because we are dearly and uniquely beloved, chosen and set apart by him, because we are now hidden in Christ Jesus and all that that means, we are to put on, literally robe ourselves in the attitudes and the behaviours and the approaches to life that he has lovingly prepared for us to live in now as his people. 
And in the verses that follow, Paul then goes on to list 11 new garments that we are to put on as believers. So Freedom Church, if I hope you're sitting comfortably today because I'm going to breach all good preaching protocol and conventions here. I'm going to um, negate and neglect my wife's advice and I'm going to go for Freedom Church's first ever 11, it doesn't even fit on two hands, point preach, looking at each of these individual garments. So you should be done by next Tuesday, I hope. So here we go. Let's have a look at these 11 garments that God has laid out for us. The very first one we see in verse 12, garment one, is compassionate hearts. You know, a compassionate heart is the opposite, the exact opposite of a judgmental heart. A compassionate heart, rather than seeing a label, sees the human behind that label. Rather than seeing the thief, it sees the father trying to feed his children. Rather than seeing the drug addict beggar, it sees the cold, the hunger, and the difficult journey that led that person to that position. Rather than seeing the home wrecker to be stoned, it sees the woman with a hopeful future. Rather than seeing the contagious leper, it sees the man in need of deep love and affection. You know, one of the moments that impacted me most as a young Christian was in the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, where a minister goes to take the message of Jesus to uh, gang members in New York. And in this book, this man wonderfully and consistently sees the gang members as children, as boys, as young adults, not as violent teenagers. But one time in particular, one of the gang leaders comes up to him and carries this knife to him as he is carrying an offering tray and threatens to steal the offering tray and cut the vicar. And the minister, instead of fear or judgment, responds with such a deep compassion, saying, you can cut me into a thousand pieces, but every one of those pieces will still love you, son. That is compassion. And here Paul says, this is one of the garments that God says we are to robe ourselves in, first and foremost. That's point one. Point two, verse 12 again, he says, kindness, the quality of being friendly, generous and considerate to all at all times. Genuinely kind people are, are the people that I most love hanging out with. Those who are warm and interested uh, enough in me to find out about me who choose to share what God has given and gifted them with, their households, their wealth, their food, their time, their space, generously with others. Those who are considerate, who pause in and amongst the hurry and the busyness of their life to make me feel blessed and could consider what others need. People like this, they exude warmth in their lives. They radiate this and they, they warm you when you come into their presence. And this warmth is caught by those around them. It becomes contagious. Their quickness to do good and kind acts is catching. Put on infectious kindness like this to all. Don't ever give yourselves excuses to be unfriendly, ungenerous and inconsiderate to others, Paul says. Put on this second garment. That is point two. 
Verse 12 again, he then goes on to say, put on humility. The, the Bible has so much to say about the role of humility in the life of a believer. It tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or pride, but to count others as better, as more important, as more precious than ourselves. It tells us to take the seat of least importance at the table in any situation. To imitate Christ's humility by not grasping after more in life, more power, more influence, more wealth, more personal glory, but instead shredding, shedding these things to be a, a humble, obedient servant of the purposes of God and the gospel of Jesus in all circumstances. Now, one of the best examples of humility that I've ever come across in the Christian life, somebody who practically lived out Christ's humility, was the missionary Hudson Taylor, who at the height of the British Empire's powers, military might, cultural influence in the world, and despite huge criticism from his contemporaries for turning his back on British values, left the attire and the powerful identity as a British gentleman behind. And uh, in around 1855, he changed his appearance completely, shaving his head for all but one dyed ponytail braid down the back and dressed himself as a Chinese wise man and teacher. He also left British food behind and safe residence behind him and immersed himself in all aspects of Chinese culture that he felt were not contrary to the gospel. And as he did this, as he humbled himself in their culture, he found that barriers and prejudices that had been there between the Chinese and himself melted away. They were removed and he was able to serve the country with the gospel in a new and enduring way that lasts through for to today. Here, Paul says, God has warmed and laid out servant robes for you to put on, like this. Robes of humility to allow you to go to places and reach people that those occupying high, proud places could never meet. Put on humility. That is point three. Again, still in this rich verse 12, meekness, gentleness, he tells us to robe ourselves in. I think we can often forget in the world we live in that Jesus said it was the meek who would inherit the earth. Not the bolshe, not the most competitive, not the most commanding, not the most charismatic in the room, but those who approach everything with a quiet, calm gentleness. Now, meek in our world often means weak, like a sheep who just follows blindly other sheep without any real ideas of their own. But meek in the biblical sense is, is more like becoming a bridled horse, who in contrast to a wild stallion who you never quite know how they will respond in situations, will they kick out or bite back or, or be calm in the situation? You don't know what their response will be. It is like one who in everything is moved and led by its master and rider are, are predictably gentle and approach all situations to do the rider's will as he guides them. They stop, 
they pause, they consider, and they gently do what the rider is instructing them to do. Here we're not told to put on weakness, but self-controlled calmness and tenderness that always looks to respond to Jesus' prompts in all situations. That's garment four that God has laid out for you to put on as Christians, meekness and gentleness. As we move between 12 and 13, we see patience and bearing with one another is the next garment we're asked to put on. You know, the Bible is a deeply honest book and I love it for that. It doesn't just paint the church as somewhere where you're always going to have great relationships, where no one ever gets on your nerves because everyone is just so very nice to each other now that they've been saved all the time. Now, ever since Jesus brought his disciples together from a range of backgrounds, tax collectors who served the, the enemy of the day, Rome, to militant nationalist zealots who wanted to use uh, terrorism to burn down that very same place. This was the group he brought together. The, the Bible has recorded arguments and fights in the church or in the disciples of Jesus. Like who was the greatest disciple? Or at the end of Ephesians verse 4, verse 2, Paul entreats two women who have uh, formerly laboured in the gospel together but have fallen out and started becoming bitter with one another. And he tells them to stop this argument, stop this fighting. You know, sometimes being part of a family genuinely just means bearing with one another, standing with one another until the storm passes over. Standing while somebody has a, a low moment, a, a bad moment, throws a tantrum, does something horribly foolish, doesn't listen to wisdom, or starts just outright arguing with other people. To do this well, to stand through these storms well without breaking relationship, avoiding quick, angry response requires patience and bearing with another, one with a bearing with one another. So here the Bible says, put on this garment that has been laid out for you. It's number five. Six, forgiveness in verse 13. You know, here is another huge aspect of the redeemed life in Christ. The call to forgive those who wrong us, who hurt us, who slander us, who reject us, who disregard us, who oppress us. In fact, to forgive anyone who does anything that is negative towards us. You know, how and whether we forgive is a true mark of our Christianity. Matthew 18 says, if we have an unwillingness to forgive others, it really shows we have not truly grasped the extent of the forgiveness that has been shown to us through Christ by God. Now, if we are focused on other people's sin towards us, we have missed that by the grace of God alone, Jesus has reached down from heaven and draw us up from the muck and the mire and the dirt of our life. And by grace alone, and at an impossibly large price, he has seated us in heavenly places instead. We miss that we are all guilty sinners who could not save ourselves whose every work 
Even our good works, as Isaiah said, were like menstrual rags before God, totally unclean. If we focus on other people's wrongs, we have taken our gaze off what Jesus wants us to be aware of, our own holiness gap between who Jesus calls us on to be and who we actually are. We become blinded to our own shortfalls by focusing on who they are versus who they are supposed to be. Instead, as those saved by grace alone, our position should be one always of such a gratitude to Jesus for saving us from our insurmountable debt that we should forgive over and over and over and over again, even if we are faced with a repeat offender. 77 times Jesus tells us to forgive in Matthew 18, 21. What was the last time you forgave somebody 77 times? And we should always remain more passionate about asking God to address our shortfalls and sins than those of others. Forgiveness is massive for a Christian. And here in verse 13, we're not only told to forgive, but to forgive with the same abandonment and freedom and totality and with the same personal cost that Jesus did at the cross, who sought forgiveness even for the undeserving and the ignorant for their own wrongdoing who as he was murdered on the cross in total injustice, cried out, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. This can be a great challenge to our hearts. I am willing to forgive, but only those who recognise their wrongdoing to me. I'm not going to forgive those who don't recognise it yet, who are still ignorant to their wrongdoing. But as C.S. Lewis writes, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Put on the robe of forgiveness, Freedom Church. That's number six. Number seven, verse 14 says, put on love, and I'll paraphrase this, which is like gorilla glue to relationships. Put on love, which is like gorilla glue to relationships. If nothing else sticks, in this preach this morning, we are told we should robe ourselves in the love of Christ that laid its life down, life down for its friends. Love that went to the Samaritans, bitter rivals of the Jews, and showed them care and healing. Love that washed the feet of his followers. Love that laid its life down for the world. For this love is the glue that binds families together. Without it, relationships fall apart. It doesn't matter how many times you forgive, how patient you are with others, how meek and how gentle, without actively and without sincerely having a loving heart to one another's. Even the closest relationships fall apart. Marriages fail because both parties stop putting love on love. Friendships break because love departs. Be sticky with love, Paul says. Make sure you're Glue to those around you is there and never forget to be defined by love. Because it removes the Teflon of frustration, of wrongdoing and of hate that causes things to break apart. So dress yourself in love. We're moving on through. Number eight, we're on. Point number eight. 
peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, verse 15 says. What rules in your heart is a great question to ask ourselves. What governing principle guides it and causes you to respond to others? According to Collins Dictionary, a governing principle is a fundamental moral rule that guides and influences how you go about your business. Christ came to reconcile what was broken, God and man, to remove hostility, to mediate this broken relationship because of the sin in our hearts, to bring peace between two warring factions. In doing this, he set the governing principle for our lives. As far as possible, seek peace and reconciliation wherever needed. Blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12:18 says, "If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone." This means wherever we find ourselves at odds in some way, spot something in our lives that needs reconciling, a relationship, wherever we see or are in conflict, our primary goal, our governing principle should be to use everything in our power to see that which is broken restored both individual and large scale, to bring peace, even when it is done at personal cost. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15 states. Let peace be your ruling principle. Robe yourself in it. Number nine, verse 16, another really important one. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and use this word to teach and admonish each other with all wisdom. I love the word dwell. Do you know, it, it's such a, uh, a, a pictorial word. It brings to mind an image of an old man sitting calmly in front of a fire, reading a book in a rustic old cabin in total comfort. Maybe one that he built with his own hands the smell of fresh bread on the stove, a place of complete belonging for him that he's never rushing away from, but instead is in the heart of stewing in the comfort of his surroundings. And the invite here by using this word is to let the word of Jesus sit in us like this man sat in this cabin, making a home for the word in our minds and our hearts and our spirit and letting it richly seep into our very being. Then using what we learn from this word, after it's made a home in our hearts and minds to guide, rebuke and challenge us and those around us with all wisdom. Now, the word of Jesus was never just meant to be analysed and understood, known about. It was meant to be eaten like fresh bread, chewed on, taken in to energise the very essence of our beings. It was intended to dwell in us and change everything from the inside out. Have you caught this purpose of the word? Do you daily put on the word in this way? Just dwell in it daily. That's point nine. Number 10, and put on thankfulness that bursts into psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, verse 16 says. There should be no po-faced misery Christians. Not really. If you're one of these, you've maybe forgotten this call of Paul to robe yourself always in thanksgiving. Not just in a superficial way, but in a way that causes psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to well up from the 
bring inside you an overflow in joy. To choose daily to focus not on what you have not got. Sorry, I'll get that right. To focus on what you have got, not on what you haven't got. And let the great gift of what Jesus did at the cross stand before you always in life. Uh, perhaps you say to this, that's all right for you, Matt, but my circumstances are too bad. I'm not built like that. If that's your position, then I want you to go away from this preach and read Psalm 63 or contemplate the, the story of someone like Bilquis Sheikh, who lost everything in her native country, Pakistan, her fortune, her family, her cultures, but counted it all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus, just like Paul did, because she knew Jesus, the great treasure. Even though she lost everything, it was okay, because Jesus was what she had. Thankfulness is always a choice in all circumstances. Put it on, says Paul. You have good cause to as believers. And finally, number 11, wow, mop your brow. Verse 17 tells us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, when I first trained as a probation officer about 15 years ago, I remember a presentation at my graduation where one of the senior staff members said, you now represent the service. You now represent the service, not just when you're at work, but when you're out, when you're driving, when you're at home, in your daily lives, you now represent the probation service. If you do something wrong, it reflects badly on the service. When you do something right, it reflects well on us all. And these words are right, actually. If you've ever seen someone in the public sector do something wrong, criminal or immoral, their job title is always mentioned to add to the newspaper's outrage. Public servants represent their services. And the same is true of Christians and Jesus. We represent him now. And sadly, I think there's probably truth in the statement that half the time people have not made it to Jesus because they have encountered Christians first. Christians who have not fully understood the importance that in the world they are associated with Jesus in all that they do. When they don't work hard at work, when they are unkind, when they do wrongs to people, it reflects on Jesus and the gospel. When they put good works on display for the world to see, people get to see and perceive the heart of the king. Great responsibility. Therefore, 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Put on the responsibility of carrying his name daily and carry it well. 11 points. We've, we've made it through the 11 points today. The 11 garments that Paul lays out for us as believers to put on. The robes that are lovingly laid out for us from the King of Kings. And I hope you see that they are beautiful, powerful, uh, multicolored robes. I hope I've conveyed something of that, even in these quick points today. But I want to finish on this by coming back to the open, opening two words of this passage in verse 12. Put on. Put on. Put on is not a passive thing. You know, when I get up in the morning, I, I don't just stare at the clothes and my floor robe by my bed and all of a sudden become dressed for the day without any personal effort. 
That is a silly expectation. And if, if I live this way, I would have some very embarrassing days. Instead, every morning without fail, I have to get up and actively choose to put on each item of clothing. Only then do I become clothed. Paul's choice of words here show that this is the case for the 11 items of clothing God has laid out for you. You can't expect them just to spring onto your being. Instead, you have to choose each morning out of the wardrobe of ways to live your life, to put on the robe because your Father in heaven wants you to and has laid out for you. How? Well, the discerning amongst you will have noticed that the majority of these garments of the Lord, the peace, the patience, the love, are fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives, fruits of his daily presence within us, things that he draws out of us. Part of putting on the, the robes here are coming to him daily and acknowledging his presence daily and inviting his presence daily to come and overflow from our lives. Asking him to help you get properly dressed each morning daily in the nature of Jesus. It is essential. But secondly here, you know, there's something in this of your own Practice discipline, your will, your choice, and your perseverance. They all pay a part in the putting on. You have been freed. This started with this. You're free to holy favour. You are beloved. That's the way this started today. But part of this freedom now is that you have the freedom to choose to live a life of obedience of following your king, of living the way that he has invited you to live. You're no longer trapped, so you can't live that. And he's inviting you through will and through choice to daily get up and robe yourselves in the nature that he desires for you. That is part of your calling, Freedom Church. Put on the robes that your loving father has laid out for you daily. God bless you.